You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. And this is her interpretation of if Jesus was with us today, um, what the Beatitudes might sound like now. Um, Blessed are the agnostics. Blessed are they who doubt. Those who aren't sure, who can still be surprised. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are they for whom death is not an abstraction. Blessed are they who have buried their loved ones, for whom tears could fill an ocean. Blessed are they who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. Blessed are the mothers of the miscarried. Blessed are they who don't have the luxury of taking things for granted anymore. Blessed are they who cannot fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are those who still aren't over it yet. Blessed are those who mourn. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are those who no one else notices, the kids who sit alone at middle school lunch tables, the laundry guys at the hospital, the sex workers and the night shift street sweepers. Blessed are the forgotten. Blessed are the closeted. Blessed are the unemployed, the unimpressive, the underrepresented. Blessed are the teens who have to figure out ways to hide the new cuts on their arms and legs. You are of heaven and Jesus blesses you. Blessed are the wrongly accused, the ones who can never catch a break, the ones for whom life is hard, for Jesus chose to surround himself with people like them. Blessed are those without documentation. Blessed are the ones without lobbyists. Blessed are foster kids and special ed kids and every other kid who just wants to feel safe and loved. Blessed are those who make terrible business decisions for the sake of people. Blessed are the burnt out social social workers, the overworked teachers, and the pro bono case takers. Blessed are the kids who step between the bullies and the weak. Blessed are they who hear that they are forgiven. Blessed is everyone who has ever forgiven me when I didn't deserve it. Blessed are the merciful, for they totally get it. It's not that hard, Bob. Just walk over there and get the podium. Um, We've been talking a lot about hope here lately, and specifically finding hope in the midst of despair, and how we can be people of hope today uh, in a world and at a time in history where I think we are just inundated and saturated constantly, 24-7, with negativity and crises and and the knowledge of injustice in the world. And if you are on social media or you pay attention to the news, I don't know about you, but it can feel absolutely overwhelming. Just one event after another, one catastrophe after another. And you know, we're a church that talks about these things on Sunday mornings. You know, a lot of people say this is a heavy church, you know, because we really do try to engage with the truth of our lives, right? Um, and I don't know about you, but it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like it's a struggle to find hope, and it's a struggle to find the inspiration we need to really be agents of change and be inspired to be, you know, working for justice and, and to be a voice of justice and, and peacemaking in our lives. And, 
And so we've been talking about that lately here. How, what are strategies and solutions for hope uh, for this community, uh, for those of you who are present, and those of you watching online via Facebook or listening via the podcast? And last week we got into um, you know, talking about, in our discussion ports, and some, some solutions and strategies uh, for building hope and that can actually change the world. And I want to continue that this morning by inviting J.P. Mavinga forward. J.P. came, after, uh, came to me uh, after service last week and said, you know, I really liked the conversation. I was downstairs with my daughter and uh, I got, I have a unique story and sort of a unique point of view about how we can make a difference in the world maybe and, and be agents of change and be agents of hope. And, and so I said to J.P., I said, well, why don't you come forward at the top of my talk to, uh, next week? Come on over here, brother. And, uh, you know, just take five, ten minutes and share your story, share your point of view in this matter, and uh, we'll go from there. So here's J.P., everybody. Hi. Um, yeah, I'm usually sometimes here, sometimes downstairs with my partner, Shauna. She's over there being lovely, and Thea, the one-year-old, being cute. Um, the subject that, that uh, um, kind of came up last week is, is something that I think about a lot. So um, I was born in the Congo, the big one. There's two of them. Um, where if you read about the Congo, you'll see all kinds of horrible things have been happening for longer than I've been alive. Um, that is a part of my family and my reality, but I've not really lived there. Um, we left when I was six months old, took a visit there when I was four for about three weeks. And I remember those things very clearly, but in an abstract way, because I was a middle-class kid living somewhere else. Um, where I really saw... Uh, that other part of the world, what you might call the third world, was one year that my family spent in Liberia. And so I want to share something that I saw as a nine-year-old, um, and then uh, a take on it that's a little bit more cosmic, and then kind of uh, come back around, hopefully, and make it make sense. So when we were in Liberia, we were only there for a year for some complicated reasons. Um, this was one year before they went to war in 1989. If you know anything about that war, it's pretty scary, but essentially you saw one of those phenomenons of a lot of child soldiers. So you're talking kids, okay? If they can hold a weapon, they were in it. Um, and that was a year before that. So we were there, we kind of saw that things were not right. We saw some of the tension. Um, our family, we came from somewhere else. My dad's a, a PhD, blah, blah, blah. They were, we knew that that was not our reality forever, but it was very difficult. There was a time when we didn't have a lot of food just because, well, the university ran out of cash, right? They used to pay us in cash because they had a vault, and the currency in that country at the time was only coins. So when they ran out, they just didn't have it. And so they gave my dad an IOU, which is like useless. Um, and I saw people, while that was going on, who had less than we did. And so I remember seeing incredible hardships. I, there's a lot of little stories I could go into, but, but just imagine whatever you've seen on TV, it was like that, except it was next door. And um, I remember I got malaria, which is scary. Um, just a lot of just difficult things. So coming from the Western world, I assumed that everybody just inherently was gonna be sad because it was like that a lot. But there was a day when there was a place called Patawi, 
And for whatever reason, I don't remember all the details, but a bunch of us kids got on this little bus and we went there. And it was, uh, so where we lived, so Liberia is a, I won't go into the history, but the capital of Monrovia is on the coast. We were in Cuttington, which is an hour north in the interior. This is West Africa. And then we went a little further in the interior. And there was this place that had these beautiful falls with rocks or whatever. And as we approached it, all these kids who, I mean, are coming from poverty. So you had like, you know, a lot of them had no shoes or old shorts with holes or rubber sand, whatever. But as we were getting there, they were so excited. And I remember being happy, thinking it was fun, but I had never been as happy as they were. And they all started singing these songs that they knew I didn't know because I was a foreigner. Um, and I remember when they came out of that little bus, this incredible expression of cheer and joy and happiness. And what stayed with me in that context is these are things that are universal. And I chose childhood because I think we can certainly all relate to that. I think our, in our adulthood, we see different challenges and different cultures, and that's where we branch. But there are things that are native to us as children. And despite that hardship, they were having fun, and they were playing, and they were laughing, just like kids do. This is a fact everywhere in the world. So sometimes, even if you mean a good thing, when you're thinking about other part of the world, of them as other or this thing or war or like, no, it's all of us. We're all like that. We're all capable of that fun and that joy and that creativity. And it's very, very important, I believe, to, to keep that in mind, that especially as children, we're all the same. So the other point that, that sort of relates is like, you were talking about uh, last week and it went eye for an eye and that kind of a thing. And um, there's a view of the universe that is mechanistic. So you think of action and then equal and opposite reaction. And then you can model your justice after that, right? And it doesn't require much imagination. And most people can understand that, well, if this happens, then that happens. And that's, that's fair. We call it fair. The thing about that is, we are all, I, my belief, made in the image of God. I'm not going to try to define what God is, but for the purposes of this idea, is that we are all creative. We are all capable of much more than equal and opposite, and that is to say grace. So what I saw for me in those children when they came out of that bus were acts of imagination. When you think of your enemy or somebody else and you think of them in the terms of what's wrong and, and the thing that deserve a consequence, oftentimes what people fail to do is view that person singing and dancing and experiencing joy of their dreams or of their happiness and their hopes, right? Is there another way of seeing that person? Is there another way to live? So for me, one of the ways in which we are let's just say, uh, imbued with divinity or made in the likeness of God is that we are capable of imagination. To me, grace is as much of an act of compassion, but also 
imagination, the ability to imagine another way forward. And I think therein we learn. Um, when, when we were talking yesterday and I was downstairs, like that's, that's really what I felt was, was, was kind of hitting me. And, and I have a lot of other stories, but I, I, that one came forward to me and I don't know why. I just knew that like what happened in that country afterwards was horrible. And uh, 20 years later, I found some of my classmates on Facebook. <laughs> and we're like, okay, so a lot of people came out of it. I, you know, I don't know what happened to everybody, but many people left or, or whatever. Um, the school that I went to, and Shauna knows this, has a, a crater next to the principal's office. And I remember we used to you know, run by there, walk by there, you went in there and you got in trouble, but that school is defunct, obviously. Um, but in that same place, there are still people singing and dancing and experiencing joy. So I just wanted to kind of convey that to you to think of, I'm not offering a solution or anything political, think of those other parts of the world that way as well, that there is tremendous joy, tremendous creativity, and some of the ideologies that, that shape what happens are, uh, well, at least to children, mostly irrelevant in terms of what they truly are about and do. So, thank you. Thanks, GP. Our passage today is from Mark 4. Max read it earlier. With what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable will we use for it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the ground is the smallest of all seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes the greatest of all shrubs and puts forth large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Jesus talks about this thing called the kingdom of God a lot. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. He compares it to a mustard seed here and, and how despite being small and seemingly insignificant, Paltry, perhaps, according to the world standards. It's actually something that contains great, great potential. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, this is important to understand, he is not talking about heaven on high. When Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he is not talking about a celestial plane where God and the angels and, and the spirits of dead saints live together. No, he, he's not talking about an otherworldly place. Jesus is talking about an earthly place. When he speaks of the kingdom of God, he's talking about the rule and reign of God on earth. He's talking about what the world would look like if God was in charge. When Jesus speaks about the kingdom of God, he's talking more specifically about the rule and reign of things like love and justice and mercy and compassion, like JP was talking about, and imagination and joy and peacemaking. That's what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of those virtues on the earth and how those virtues can permeate every aspect of our lives, socially, politically, economically, etc. That's what he's speaking of. And he compares the kingdom of God to a mustard seed here. And I take that to mean that the ways of God, love, justice, compassion, mercy, imagination, these things seem paltry and weak upon first blush. These things seem paltry and weak and insignificant to the world. You know, in the world, the world measures strength and power 
in terms of violence and force and coercion and you know, physical strength or military might or the ability to leverage people and resources, right? Control, physical control, you know, financial control, etc. right? But the kingdom of God measures strength. The kingdom of God says those powers are actually weak. And the true strong powers in, of the world, the powers of the spirit, love, compassion, peacemaking, imagination, etc. The ways of siding with the poor and the powerless seem paltry and weak to the world. The ways of identifying with the outcasts and the misfits and befriending them instead of the so-called you know, cool and important people. These things seem paltry and weak to the world, but it is the way of the kingdom of God, the way of true strength and true power. It's like what JP was talking about, how I've heard him say this before, too, that we can all make a difference in the lives of people in our lives with compassion. We all have the power in our circle of friends and family to make differences in people's lives with compassion. I've heard JP talk about how compassion is an act of creativity. We often don't think of that. Compassion and love is actually a creative act a powerful and creative act. This is, this is a kingdom way of thinking. This is a, a mustard seed way of thinking. If, if you think of every individual in your life, every person as a world unto themselves, and they are, we are each universes and worlds unto ourselves, rich and complex, valuable and significant. But if we think of the individuals in our lives as worlds unto themselves, just by making a difference in one person's life is a way of changing the world. When we measure the world at that depth, and I think we should, just making a difference in one person's life is a way of changing the world. And this is a way of finding hope, I think. This is a way of combating the hopelessness that can so easily beset us and we feel overwhelmed by the world and its problems, not just in our own life, but in the lives and the communities and the nations around us. We have to main faith, maintain faith in our own agency. We've got to believe in our own individual power and the power of even tiny communities like this one to make a difference in people's lives. We've got to have hope in that. And you know, we're never going to be free of feelings of despair. We're always going to be wrestling with feelings of despair and hopelessness. That, those feelings are always going to be at least in the background of our lives. But those feelings do not have to disempower us. I'm reminded of Dr. Martin Luther King today. You know, this is MLK week, and actually tomorrow is the day that we commemorate him and, and his work and his, specifically his work with you know, nonviolent resistance. But consider how effective and world-changing he was, and yet many people don't know how much he struggled with depression. Many people are not aware how much he struggled with feelings of despair and depression. His closest of friends and traveling companions talk about how towards the end of his life, he barely slept. The man barely slept. In fact, there's a story about how one night his... Uh, his travel companions, his staff, looked in on him in his hotel room to make sure that he was, you know, in bed. They, they look in on him, and they discover he's not in bed. 
And of course, it's terrifying. They have no idea where he is. And they find him out on his hotel balcony, in his pajamas, middle of the night, weeping and singing hymns to himself. And of course, they're like, Martin, are you okay? You know, we, you need to get back to bed, man. You know, you need to try to sleep. And he said, yeah, 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 I will, I will. Just leave me alone. They do. The next morning, they come to his room, expecting to find him dressed and ready to go for the day. He's not there. He's still out on the balcony in his pajamas, crying and singing hymns to himself. And he turns to his friends and says, I don't want to do this anymore. I just want to go back to my little church. I just want to go back to my little church. People forget that he was originally just a Baptist pastor from Montgomery, Alabama. And yet, yet despite the depression and despair, and we all can imagine why he struggled with depression and despair, you know, the things he was up against and dealing with on a daily basis, and yet despite his struggles with depression and despair, look at what he accomplished. And look at how much he's still accomplishing from beyond the grave. It's often those who know the most sorrow and troubles in this life that are also the most effectual agents of change. You know, maybe it's not a bad thing to feel despair. Maybe it's not a bad thing to feel sorrow. Only someone, I think, who is naive and unfeeling wouldn't feel despair at the magnitude of the problems in our world today. Feeling sorrow and despair, I think, is a, a sign of great emotional depth and intelligence and understanding. And it's not so much the feelings of despair that I think should worry us. It's, it's the giving in to despair that's the problem. It's, it's giving in to a sense of hopelessness and, and adopting a position of passivity. That's, that's the thing we need to resist. And there are good reasons to hope and not give in to despair. I mentioned a, a book about a month ago that I want to mention again called Hope in the Dark, Untold Histories and Wild Possibilities by Rebecca Solnit. There it is up on the, on the screen. It's basically just a catalog of both major and minor social justice victories in, in history. And actually our friend uh, Andre Henry, black activist friend of ours, uh, claims this book saved his life. That's a powerful endorsement. You know, if you're looking for a resource that can give you hope uh, in the midst of life as it actually is, this, this is a good one. Um, and I, I like this book. The author, Rebecca Solnit, quotes Susan Griffin, a 76-year-old um, feminist activist who has been working on womanist issues since the 1960s. And Griffin says this, I've seen enough change in my lifetime to know that despair is not just self-defeating, but is unrealistic. I love that quote. I've shared it now a few times. <laughs> despair is not just self-defeating, but it's unrealistic. Because if we've learned anything from history, it's that the unimaginable is ordinary and that the way forward is never a straight line. The world is a totally uncertain place. Nobody knows what the future holds. And there are endless possibilities, both good and bad. And I'm saying that we can embrace the chaotic and the uncertain nature of our world is actually a good thing. The chaotic nature of the world makes it impossible for us ever to know the full impact of our actions, both as individuals and even as a small community like this one. We must therefore take a leap of faith and believe that the actions driven by love can actually improve the world. 
This is not blind faith because all of human history indicates that such faith is the only engine of positive change. Choosing to practice hope is not delusional, it is not naive, it's, na it's natural. And it's always been integral to progress. It's rational, hope is rational, hope is logical. It's not just the choice that feels better. Hope over despair is rational and it is logical, it is the better choice, it's the right choice. You know, despair is a dangerous thing because it has a kind of amnesia effect. Despair causes us to misremember the past and to forget how the past is chock full of both major and minor social justice victories. There have been, just in the last century, there has been tremendous strides, tremendous achievements in human rights. We think about race and gender and, and sexuality and class. Tremendous strides have been made. Yes, much more work has to be done, absolutely. But we would be wrong to discount or deny that great achievements have occurred and on a scale never seen before in world history. There are many reasons for us to have hope and for, to be people of hope. But it all starts right here, with us as individuals. We have to believe in the power of our own agency. We have to believe in the power of compassion and love and direct action. We have to believe that we have a voice in our circle of friends and family, that we can make a difference in individual lives and thereby change worlds. We have the power to change worlds. We have to be, you know, mustard seed people. This is what it means to be mustard seed. To, to believe in the so-called power of the weak and the paltry, the so-called paltry and insignificant things of this world. This is what it means to have faith, Christian faith. To believe in the power of the mustard seeds. The power of a single word. The power of a single conversation. The power of a, a single gesture of kindness the power of a, of a small little community, even like this one. We have the power to change worlds. But only if we have hope, only if we believe in the power of love and compassion and empathy and justice and peacemaking. We've got to be mustard seed people. When I think about my life, I can point to specific people, specific conversations, Specific books, specific events, moments that changed my life forever. Eight years ago, before I was fully affirming of same-sex relationships, I was you know, the pastor of this church, and there was a man who attended here. He's since moved to Cleveland. His name's Jonathan Stein. Some of you know who he is and remember Jonathan. He was the first, I think, <laughs> he was the first gay man who attended Central. This was before we were affirming and before I was fully affirming. I was probably side B at the time, which means I was, you know, believed, you know, you could, you could be a Christian if you were gay, but you had to remain celibate, probably something like that. But Jonathan, Jonathan and I, he invited me out to lunch every month. We'd go to a restaurant about a half mile from here. And we would have lunch once a month, and Jonathan and I would talk, and he would share with me his story as an out gay man in a relationship who was also a deeply committed Christian. And my relationship with Jonathan changed me. 
And it's what brought me to this place of affirmation. It was a relationship with one guy, and it changed this church. And some of you are here today only because this church is affirming. And you have Jonathan Stein to thank, and you don't even know who he is. <laughs> He's moved on to Cleveland. My point is saying this. We've got to believe in mustard seed moments. That's all we have. Life is just a series of mustard seed moments. Love is made up of mustard seed moments, you could say. That's what love really is. And compassion and justice. The work of justice is made up of a series of mustard seed moments like that. Believe in the mustard seeds is what I'm saying. Have hope in the mustard seeds. That's all we have, really. That's all we need. And I want to open it up now to you. Uh, we always have a dialogue every week. But I, I want to specifically ask you this question. Let me give you a moment to think about it. What, were, what are some mustard seed moments in your life? Maybe a, a conversation you had with somebody, an encounter you had, maybe a, a dialogue, maybe it was a book, meeting somebody. It can be a good event, it can be a bad event. Bad events, negative events can be quite life-changing too, right? But what were some mustard seed moments in your life that have led you to where you're at? Maybe that ultimately led to a positive change. Yeah, Jason, and um, do we have a, any kind of wireless mic? Let's, let's give the wireless a, <laughs> a try. And you know what, Jason, just talk loud. I can oh, project. He can project. Go ahead and try the mic. Let's see if it works. Does this work? No. Bobo, can you turn it up? I don't want to make everybody yell if possible. Hello? Try it one more time, Jason. Hello? Awesome. Technology. Go ahead. All right. Now I'm nervous. Eh, I know. It's all right. Um, I wanted to say three things. One, I don't believe, I have a hard time wrapping my head around the idea that hope is rational, but I'll work on it. Two, um, I love just, the honesty. It just being honest. Um, and that's a whole conversation we don't have to get into right now. Um, two, this church, our church really helped me reframe, and I'm still working on it, the idea that um, you don't have to do big things to be um, uh, a loving person or to be in the right place as a human being, that the little things, like you, I think it's, for me, and it might be evangelical things from where I grew up, or it might be capitalism and work ethic, but it always feel, felt like you have to do really big things to make a difference, and we never can do those big things, and so it feels like we're never making a difference, and that's depressing. Yeah. But reframing it down to, you know, helping out at Ascensia, or like taking care of foster kids at Christmas, like those little things make a big difference. Um, and three, a few years ago, I think it was on Reddit, I got my mind blown a little bit, um, and I can't say it dramatically as it was on the little Reddit post, but uh, somebody pointed out that we watch movies or we think about what it would be like to travel back in time and how we have to make sure that we don't, you know, make any changes because it can severely affect our timeline. But we never think about how little changes today can affect the future timeline in the same way. And to me, that was like really 
mind blowing. It's like, yeah, leave a coffee cup in 1800s for Starbucks, and all of a sudden we're like, you know, in flying cars. But we never think about like how little tiny changes we do now. Yeah. You know, reading a book or opening, I don't know, old lady across the street. Who knows? Right. Can like drastically change the future. I just that That's was awesome on my mind. Thanks, man. Mustard seed moments. Somebody else want to share a mustard seed moment? Yeah, Anthony, way over there, all the way over there, Max. Thank you. Um, I think I've said it before that uh, uh, my grandfather, my dad's father, is kind of like a big deal preacher in Austin. Uh, and I would see him most regularly when I was in college. He would come up to Dallas for like different revivals at churches because people wanted him, to, wanted him to come talk. And he would take me to this like kind of fancy restaurant and we would eat and just like talk, fellowship, whatever. And so this one year I knew I was like, I'm going to come out to him because I just like, he was the second person I came out to because I looked at him as almost like my pope, if that makes sense. And so he gave me everything that I expected, you know, Abomination, uh, what chapters, Timothy, all these different books. But in the middle of all that, he had a moment where he was like, well, you know what, I have read things where it could be something in the womb, or it could be, you know, some kind of scientific thing, and I can't discount that. And then he went back to all, like, the verses, but I was like, it was really in that moment where I just really heard, okay, you know, he didn't have, he didn't have to throw me that mustard seed, like you said, you know, yeah. that was a moment that I definitely clung to, to to just keep breathing and then keep telling everybody else. Wow. Yeah. Thank you, Anthony, for sharing that. Somebody else. Yes, Emily. Um, I just wanted to share a little story of something that I remember happening a few years ago on behalf of Aaron, because he probably doesn't even remember. But um, uh -oh. <laughs> I um, was on our like neighborhood Facebook site, you know, over something, and this woman kind of messaged me. I think she was like the moderator of the group, the admin of the group, or whatever. It was just like the you know Montrose, whatever, like yeah. talking about just events around town. And um, she messaged me and she said, are you married to Pastor Aaron? Uh -oh. She saw my name. And I was like, yeah, that's my husband. And she said, um, you probably don't remember me, but you got me connected to him. Or I think she got connected to you. I gave you her info years and years ago. She was a single mom with two younger children at the time. And I don't even remember what we did or what you, I didn't do anything except put you in contact because Aaron worked with Asensia at the time and um, she you know we got her housing for I think one night yeah. our church probably paid for it she was a victim of domestic violence so um, and it was something where there's with domestic violence there's a lot of um, difficulties with a lot of traditional shelters won't accept right. um, people who are victims of domestic violence unfortunately they have to go to very specific shelters because of um, security and whatnot 
Um, so I don't know exactly what all we did, and I, I'm sure that the, our church was involved in some way in providing we, we some funding. We put her funding. up for a few nights at a local hotel to get her out of the house, yeah, with so her with her kids. It was something very small, on you know, someone that someone had you know said talked about in the community, and um, she reached out to me, you know, years later, just because she recognized my name, and she said, "You guys saved my life and and changed my life forever." And um, you know, she's now like kind of a little community leader, and she was able to stay in the area. Her kids are thriving in school, in the local schools. And I just thought that was really, like, special yeah. and meaningful that she... Because it was something that, you know, we've done many, many times. Yeah, we've um, done that a few times, yeah. You know, you don't often hear a result. And, you know, it was something that when I told Aaron the story initially, I was like, do you remember this name? And I kind of... And he was like, you know, really had to kind of sit and think about it. And, um, you know, when she saw just my last name on Facebook, it you know, she remembered us and our church and everything, you know, and it was... You know, and she said in no uncertain terms, like, you guys saved my life and changed it for the, for the better. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Emily. Yeah, somebody else. Well, good stuff. I hope you're encouraged. I hope you're filled with some hope this morning. Thank you so much for being here. We're getting a little early, but uh, come to lunch with us if you're up for it. Uh, next week is the congregational meeting.